Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard, as always, joining you on this latest one of our usual podcast roundup. And today I've got a returning visitor with me uh, to talk all things learning. And the guys at How Now, I've got Gary String, I'm going to introduce Gary in a second, but the guys at How Now have done some interesting bit of research. And I thought, you know what, let's get him on and delve into some of that research. But Gary, how are you doing? So you good? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Chris. I'm all right. I'm feeling fairly positive for a Monday, so I'm, I'm pretty happy. Nice. Nice. We like it. We like it. So you guys have produced uh, some interesting bits of research and you've released a couple of blogs on some of your findings around. Yeah. One of them, of course, was uh, just looking at customers in general, but you also looked at your sort of top 50 customers that are getting good responses from their people in terms of engagement. We want to go into that in a second. But before we do that, let's do the old uh, usual credentials check. So can you just tell our listeners maybe who haven't uh, heard you on the podcast, because I know you've been on a couple of times before, yeah. just tell them a little bit about yourself and then also who How Now are as well. Yes. Cool. Absolutely. So yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm the third, this is my third time actually, so I'm getting the hat trick today. But my name is Gary Stringer. I'm the content marketing manager here at How Now. We're a learning experience platform that works with fast growing companies like Checkout.com and Depop, all the way up to global enterprises like Investec and Sanofi to help them bring relevant learning to the flow of work. So solving problems like centralizing knowledge into one place, empowering subject matter experts to create content, helping companies measure skills so they can deliver relevant learning and then integrating with the tools they use every day so they can do it in the flow of work. I'm also the host of a podcast called L&D Disrupt Live, which happens every two weeks, dives into common pain points for L&D professionals and, and sort of the trends that we're seeing in the industry. Yeah, and I definitely recommend that. It's worth checking out. What platforms, just for, just for the benefit of our listeners? Yeah, if they want to join live, it happens on Zoom every two weeks on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. And uh, you can go to lu.ma forward slash how now to see them all live. And if not, you can just search for how now on YouTube because we record the video versions. And also anywhere you get podcasts, just search for LNU Disrupt and we should be there. Nice. So let's delve into some of the data that you guys have did. Yeah. We'll break it down into the two separate sections, I think. So yeah. we'll go into the first one. So you had a look at over 100 How Now customers just yeah. to try and identify some common trends and ranking in terms of pieces of content. So can you just tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that exercise, but then also just like a top level, some of the findings that we'll get into like the lessons yeah. learned because you've obviously got yeah. your different lessons, but just a little bit about why you decided to do it, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So the main thing for me, I don't know how familiar you are, Chris, with Gong, the sales software. It's like a sales enablement platform that helps people drive revenue. I was really inspired by what they're doing because they're looking at the data around how people use their platform. And then they're putting out this best practices based on that data. So for example, they'll look at which actions happened in a sequence that closed a deal. They'll look at which words are used in emails that progress people down the sales funnel. And they're using that data to release these, I think it's called Gong Labs, where they look at the mm -hmm. best practices share those with everyone so they can use them and 
I've been thinking this for a while that in L&D, there's a lot of research that says we asked 100 L&D professionals, which is often useful as well, but there's nothing really that dives into this is actually what the best L&D teams do based on the data around their performance. So for me, it was a case of marrying that inspiration from Gong with that little blind spot in the space and saying, let's look at 50 plus customers with the most engagement in terms of learners using the platform. And then with those customers, the 100 highest performing resources in terms of engagement to understand what exactly it is that high performing teams do. And like you said, we break it down into two buckets, really. It's what are they doing with the content to make it more discoverable, applicable and relevant? And then in terms of their learning culture, what also actions are they taking to drive more impact? Yeah. And do you know what I found interesting about some of the results? And which I'll just focus in on that blog first and the three lessons. I'm going to get you to just go through some of the details there. It was the sort of things that if you say to yourself, you'd almost think, yeah, that makes real sense. But it's only when you're then told that information that you go, actually, and, you know, as a L&D professional, you'd probably look at yourself and go, do we actually do that? So let's let's just delve into some of that. So go into lesson one. So one of the lesson ones that you talked about, short titles for content clarity. So just elaborate that on our on for our listeners and then tell us a little bit about what you guys found. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially LD often has a discoverability problem. So people might not engage with content and LD makes an assumption that's a problem with the content, but often it's because the way a resource has been named is an afterthought. So we spent all this good time creating a piece of content, spend months, days, hours, but then we spend one or two minutes naming it. Now, the problem is that people in their moments of need search because they have a problem to solve. And if the resources aren't named in a useful way, it's hard to find the things that are going to help you solve a problem. And this is basically something we found essentially High-performing teams were not only just being really succinct in the way they use titles, but they were very clear about the value that people would get from a resource. So the average length of a title for high-performing teams was just five words. No piece of content in the top 100 was more than 10 words. 92% of them used a description. And then again, that was on average just 11 words long. So succinct makes it really clear what it was. And I'm happy to kind of dive into a bit more of the the best practices we saw in this, but they were also really clear about what that resource did for the end user so that they could not only find what they need, but find it in the moments of need and for it to resonate with them. Yeah. So, I mean, you just said, let's, let's delve into some of that. What, yeah. what, what did you kind of find? Yeah, there were two top level things I would say, and one of them mirrors up nicely with a copywriting tip or technique. I should have said at the start that my background is copywriter by trade, and I'm yeah. always guilty of trying to marry L&D with, with copywriting techniques. But essentially, they tapped into something called the four U's, which is a sort of framework for writing headlines, which basically boils down to, is it ultra specific? Is it useful? Is it unique? And is it urgent? So to give you an example of how that would look, <laughs> This title is 10 words exactly to make sure I didn't crick, uh, be a bit of a hypocrite here, but how to deal with difficult customers when the system's down. It's useful because it's teaching us how to do something. It's unique because it's two very specific things. It's, it's the customer itself is difficult or the system's down. And it's ultra specific because it's marrying those two things together. So how are we dealing with those difficult customers when the system's down? That's often a problem people are probably going to face in a customer success role. And therefore, when they hit that pain point, this resource couldn't be any clearer about what issue it solves for them. And part of that, we also saw a lot of the resources speaking like the customer. So often this is another thing that even copywriters and marketers fall foul to is 
assuming that your end user uses the terminology that you'll use. So for example, we might see, maybe we're a big company and we refer to it as onboarding new customers, but our customer success team might refer to it as adding new users to the system when they face that problem. So if they search adding new users, they're not going to find the resource because you've named it onboarding new customers. And we really saw that across a lot of the resources, that idea of we're listening to how our audience phase the phrase the problem when they encounter it, meaning we can connect them to the right resources by speaking on their terms. Yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting point, an important point as well, speaking the language of the, in this instance, internal customer. I think that's something that HR, not just learning L&D professionals, but I guess HR in general, it's quite a big point being able to really speak that language because you're going to get a greater level engagement take up and an intrigue if you are able to to plug things in i mean i've done it so many times before less so now with like a google search for example i will search for something in my language i would say something in my head and you know ted i feel like five years ago that was a little bit more difficult to where you wanted to get to but google has obviously come on the the ai and the the algorithm has obviously come on that it now understands that kind of language and just to boil that down into a hr context and exactly the point you've just said speaking that language of the customer is so important that communication piece isn't it yeah yeah definitely i mean you brought up the good google example there but all of us know how frustrating it is when we search for something on google we can't find what we need and so we have to then start adding words to our search term or tweaking the way we're phrasing it until we do find what we want. And I think across L&D and HR, those internal customers are going through that pretty often. They search what they need and nothing comes up in the search results. And then it compounds. You're frustrated you can't find it. You have to spend more time looking for it. And it's a really easy way for us to reduce friction for people just by including them in the way we're naming and, and writing out our content. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the second lesson that you had in there, which is the importance of images. So what did some of the research uh, sort of give you an overview of there? This is the perfect example of what you said at the start, that it might seem like teaching people to suck eggs, but actually it's not until sometimes people point out to you just how important this is that we should be doing it. So, yeah, I would ask everyone listening to think about two scenarios. The last time they read a blog post and the last time they searched for something on YouTube, um, I would be pretty confident that the blog post had a, red, a relevant header image, some sort of images within the post or a video embedded. And then when they got to YouTube search results, their decision to click on a video would have been guided in some sense by the thumbnail in the video, essentially. And the high-performing learning content basically applies by the same rule. So we found out that 80% of the best-performing resources use a header image, 100% of them used a thumbnail image to ensure that when people saw it in search results, they would click through. So it's really just about those real basics of things you can do to improve discoverability in the sense of a thumbnail enticing people to click through and including a header or images within the post. And yeah, that kind of matches up to some industry data as well. So according to YouTube, 90% of their top performing videos use a custom thumbnail, which is specific about what's in the video. As a rule of thumb, if you kind of tend to use stock images, I would use people images over images of things they tend to perform better. And then according to Search Engine Journal, online content with visuals like images or videos receive 90% more views on average. So the best practice we saw among our high-performing customers is really the best practice from an industry perspective. And we saw that as well, one final number, actually, within the 100 resources we looked at, 41% including an image directly within the resource and almost a fifth included a video of some kind. So high-performing teams are really ticking that box of making sure it's discoverable, 
and that's aided by images and also that the content itself is visually more appealing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, actually, you just mentioned it about video, Like, how important, you might not have any data on this, but how important is like that idea of the video content to supplement the written stuff? Because I guess people digest information and learn in different ways, don't they? Yeah, Yeah, I think the one thing I've seen, and I don't really have any numbers on it, but what I've seen across a lot of high performing teams is they will prioritise timing over perfection when it comes to videos and context is the other thing. So is video the most useful way to help someone in that moment of need? Nelson, our CEO, gave a great example before of when he needed to fix his boiler and he went on YouTube and searched for how to fix that particular make and model. And the video was just this guy, it was probably like 10 years old, filmed on a phone when the quality was like a potato. And it was still so relevant because it was step-by-step, this is how you can do it. And that context really mattered. And I think that also feeds into this, the best L&D teams, I think sometimes, they also focus on the timing and the quality of the video as opposed to production. So we all know, like, we'll send a Loom video to people in our team because it's the quickest way and the low friction way to say, look, this is how you should do it. And that's something I've seen work for a lot of L&D teams is just to, to be pragmatic and know when you need to invest in video quality, but know if you've got a minimum level of quality, like something like Loom, then you will actually help people if, if the context is right. Yeah, nothing, no, sometimes that minimum viable product is quite important. It doesn't always have to be this this high production value type stuff. No, yeah, exactly. We find, and I might end up repeating myself a bit later with some of the other numbers, but if I'm really up against it at work and I just need to know how to, like we said before, upload new users to a system, I'd rather just have a Loom video that talks me through it than say, someone say to me, we've got a really detailed step-by-step video tutorial of that coming in two months and it's going to have like a fancy voiceover. I think that's the the real takeaway for me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's quite an interesting, is it lesson two is an interesting sort of takeaway in the blog because the human brain, I guess, interacts differently with visual prompts compared to just everything being written. And I think that's an important thing to know. Everyone reacts differently to certain things. Some people are like like the spoken word, the written word. Some people like the idea of visuals and stuff, but being able to cater for everyone, I think certainly is important and and engaging different parts of your brain when you're connecting to that content is, is quite good too. I want to talk about lesson three. Yes. Social learning. So talk to me about that. So why is that getting, why is that so important? And what, what do you, what do you guys mean when you're talking around that social learning side? Yeah. There's two elements to this that maybe we can tackle separately, but the first one is around content creation. So the elite L&D teams are the one that are empowering their internal experts to create content. So we saw that 40% of the content created in these organizations was by people outside the L&D team. Now, a lot of L&D teams can relate to being the bottleneck for creating content. So it's nice to see from that aspect. And then the collaborative part as well. So the average number of collaborators across more formal courses was six within the the research we looked at. And for nuggets, which we'll get onto later, but they're more informal, low friction ways to capture content, the average number of collaborators was four. And this is really important because essentially a lot of companies have what we call the leaky bucket. And it's where there are holes in your ability to capture knowledge in an organization. So An example would be you're losing a small amount of that knowledge every day when you send Slack messages that are really useful answers to repeat questions or they're really step-by-step detailed guides on how to do something and nobody captures them. So they just get lost in the daily flow of information and that happens again and again. 
And the big one is when someone leaves an organization who is the only person who knows how to do something. And I'm sure people listening today will, will really relate to that. But once that person goes and we've not been capturing that knowledge, there's a mad rush to try and capture years of wisdom someone's built up on the job in no time at all. And really, I think that is that's the bigger worry. But it's nice to see because L&D teams, the ones we looked at are doing this, they're limiting that amount of knowledge lost through the leaky bucket or they're plugging the holes to take the metaphor to its conclusion because they're empowering people to create content that other people can benefit from and that knowledge i guess the, the crux of it is that knowledge is contextual to the business like we know we can curate content from other places that experts in the industry have created but the real stuff that matters to our organization will be created by the people who've worked in the context, on the front line, they know the problems of the organization. Yeah. What's interesting about what you just said there, if you've got, if you are encouraging that social learning, you're encouraging people, the, the subject matter experts, to be able to share their knowledge. What you're also doing is you're getting people feeling a bit valued and engaged as well. Like, oh, the HR team, the L&D team, they actually really value my experience and my knowledge. And therefore, you know, I feel a little bit more connected to the company as well. So it's not just like it's got a primary value, which is we're taking this knowledge and we're cataloging it. We're making sure it's kept so that that leaky bucket, the the whole hole gets plugged, so to speak. But actually, it can also have a value in terms of having people engaged as well and thinking, do you know what? I feel listened to. Yeah, no, 100%. And this is something else we saw. So all of the best resources were enabling some sort of social validation as well. Mm -hmm. So for example, 83% of the content enabled our discussions feature in How Now, which allows you to leave comments on resources that someone else has created, to add your two cents, to provide feedback. And then on average, these posts posted an average of 20 likes. So the social signal, and that created it, that other people are using it and it's valuable. It also provides a signal to other learners that this is a piece of engaging and stimulating content because if it's got 20 likes, then that's going to be something really useful to us. If our people we respect in our team are commenting on it as well, then that's more feedback to us as well as the person who created it. And it creates this really nice feedback loop around learning because if I created it and people are saying it's useful, encouraging me to do more, if I go and use a piece of content created by one of my peers and it helps me solve a problem, it creates a better feedback loop for me. So it's such a a low friction way for L&D to build up positive credit or credit in the bank with other people. And I guess really it helps us on that mission to build the collective brain and the knowledge sharing culture, because I look at it the way we look at LinkedIn, you know, often a lot of the magic is happening in the comments. Someone shared a really good post and then someone says, I'm in a slightly different industry and this is what I've learned on the same notes, or I really like that point you made. Here's my take on it. And the same point is when we like a post on LinkedIn, it often appears in other people's feeds and we'll see that, oh, such and such person who I view as a, an expert has liked this. So, yeah, really, it kind of came full circle with the numbers. Not only were internal experts creating content, but their peers were engaging with them. And like you said, now on the head, it was just validation that these people should carry on creating more content. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I want to move us into the second blog, which is titled yeah. Three Things Guaranteed to Improve Your L&D Impact According yeah. to Data. So you've analysed your top 50 customers to see 
who's getting the highest engagement? And I like the way you describe it. How, to, how do you identify how elite L&D teams drive impact? So, again, three sort of lessons. Yeah. Uh, let's start with the first lesson that you've got then, yeah. which is high-performing L&D teams keep content relevant and up-to-date. Just to give us a bit yeah. of an overview, a flavour into that one. Yeah, definitely. And what I will say as well to anyone who goes to read the blog post, I've kind of merged one of the points about mm-hmm. sort of likes and discussions from the, this piece into my previous point. So you might see those kind of separated out across the two. But yeah, this point of verification was a really interesting one. It's something we suspected for a while, but basically 80% of the content has been verified in those high performing teams, which means someone has reviewed it for relevance. Now, this matters because it stops our internal customers looking for these up-to-date needles in out-of-date content haystacks. My favorite example of this is that when you search for a pricing list, I don't think anyone has ever gone to add a new pricing list without checking what's already there because in every organization I've been in, it's like pricing 2022, new pricing, updated sales pricing. There'd be like six or seven resources that all have a vaguely similar name. And if I'm in that moment of need, like I mentioned before, having all these pieces of content that are no longer relevant, it makes it a bit of a minefield for me to solve my problem. And this is what we saw. Yeah, teams are, the high performing teams are going back through this and reviewing what still needs to be kept, what needs to be updated and what needs to be removed essentially. Yeah, it's a really, really good point. That constant re-verification, that constant sort of validation as to are we doing the right thing? Are we going in the right direction? I think that's really, really important. And it kind of, this sort of blends into what we've already talked about. Lesson two kind of blends into some of the bits that we already talk about. So just give us a, a bit of a, a build, if that's all right, yeah. which is around elite teams empower internal experts to create content. And as we were talking about earlier, you know, the engagement that you get and the value that you get isn't just from siphoning out that information from somebody that may not be there forever it's actually much more deep than that isn't it exactly i mean content's more likely to be relevant if the person creating it is the one doing it on the job so for example if we democratize the creation of the content we're more likely to create the relevant stuff because we can ask the sales team for example what are the five best things you've seen that close a deal if someone in the sales team creates that, then it's not only likely to be relevant, they'll also know if it's still relevant over time because they can check back in. So there's a few bits here. I guess if the ownership of creating content is also shared, then the ownership of verifying it should also be shared. So there are some best practices here people could follow. Every time you create a new piece of content, search if there's already something there before you add another resource. So the pricing one's a perfect example. If there's already a pricing resource there, check if it's still relevant. If not, reach out to the originator of the content and say, by the way, I'm about to create a new one. Can you have me as a collaborator to this piece or can we amend your existing article? In HowNow, we have a really useful tool for this, which is our verification interval tool, which means every time you create a piece of content, it will prompt you to set a reminder of when you want to check that again. So you can do that on a monthly basis. It could be in a year's time, three months. And that means essentially you'll get a nudge, I think like a week or two before saying this is going to be due for renewal soon then that process will happen up until the point of verification. So I think setting some of these guardrails around, we're going to help have people help us create content, but at the same time, let's also build a good culture where they're auditing what's still relevant, using their own input and their own perspective and their own experience on the job to say, actually, this has now changed in terms of how our team works. And I think, yeah, it's not just sharing the good stuff like creating content and getting the validation. Let's also share the ownership of, Is this still up to date? Are we keeping our learning space in good shape? 
yeah and and everyone recognizing that everyone has a part to play i think uh, is important as well so i want to go on to the the third sort of lesson that you have in there which is yeah. um around how top l d teams create content that can be consumed in the flow of work and in it you guys talk about things like micro learning so yeah. can we go into that and also can you talk a little bit because you mentioned earlier about nuggets so just tell yeah. our our you our listeners about nuggets so we found out that 62% of the content created by these high impact teams was in the form of a course, like a more traditional structured course, a SCORM course, but 38% was in the form of a nugget, an informal format, which I guess I would explain as a really low friction way to create content that feels more informal and more accessible in the flow of work. So we spoke about time in beats perfection, and this is the, the perfect example of this. So Let's say that our, someone in our sales team has tested out the five best ways to close an email to book another meeting, right? And we say, right, we want to get this on the system so the rest of our sales team can benefit. A nugget is as simple as opening the create nugget option, dropping in those five bullet points that these are the best ways to close deals, adding a relevant title, of course, we already spoke about, and then sharing it with the right people and essentially allows you to create that content in essentially no time at all. And by its nature, because it's encouraging you to maybe be a bit more specific or to not get caught up in things like the design all the time, it encourages you to focus on a specific problem you solve. So like that example we just gave there, this is, we know people maybe aren't closing enough deals or they're not moving enough people to the next stage in the funnel, or maybe we diagnose their emails as a problem. So the nugget allows us to say, this is the pain point for a person, let's get an internal expert to add their two cents from what they've seen contextually on the job. And I guess the other thing would be, it allows you to mirror the ways we naturally learn. So using our browser extension to save that when you find it and just add in the, the sort of context around it in terms of title, who it will be relevant to using either the SCORM and the courses on the nuggets, because on the traditional courses, people, people are spending on average 45 minutes, but because the nuggets were set up to be that we can apply it in the flow of work. They were only spending on average 17 minutes on those pieces of content. So there was a real matchup between the intent, which is let's create specific things that can be applied in the flow of work, which is how I like to think of micro learning and a correlation to the amount of time people were using those resources. Because as we well, a lot of people will, will agree with this, but time spent learning is often a vanity metric. It's actually did this piece of content help people overcome a challenge in the moment of need when they had a real desire to learn. And I think this kind of backs all of that up. We are just coming towards the end of the pod, but I didn't want to sort of cut out any other particular parts that you might wanted to uh, just highlight of the of the two blogs. So just before we wrap up today, was there any final yeah. sort of things? If you, if you had one thing that you can leave our listeners with, what would uh, what would you say if you're going to do? If you only do one thing from this whole thirty yes. minute conversation, <laughs> do this. Yeah, I think what was apparent across this was context first to have that mindset. Mm. What is the context of when this is going to be relatable? So. For example, with the verifying of our contents up to date, we have to think in the context of how often does our industry change or how often are we releasing new product features where we're going to need this enablement internally. When we're empowering our internal experts to create content, how frequently is our team changing? How frequently is our team growing? And therefore, how who needs to know what? There's all of these context like narrative weaving through, you know, thinking like your audience, where are they when they search for that? And what are they going to search? So I think that is the one common theme I would say across all of this. If you're going to take any of these things away today, just always consider the context of who your learner is, what your industry is, what problems are they trying to achieve and which environment are they going to be in as they try and overcome them. 
That's brilliant. And Gary, really, really interesting uh, couple of blogs. We'll put the links to them in the show notes themselves uh, when we release this particular pod. Thanks very much for coming on, mate. It's been great to have you on, as always. No, yeah, really appreciate it. And um, I forgot to say, actually, on the EVA blog post, there's a checklist where people can download this really succinct summary of all of these points that you could be applying today. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that on as you go through the two blog posts. But thanks for Lovely. having me, Chris. Always a pleasure. No, it's absolutely brilliant. Of course, if you are a regular listener, you will already know where you can find the uh, podcast. But if you've stumbled across us for the first time, you can catch all of our podcasts on the Lace Partners website, which is lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast. We've also got lacepartners.co.uk forward slash insights where you can see videos. We run webinars. We're often at events. We've got blog content, white papers, all that kind of stuff, as well as campaign activity and the podcast itself. So please feel free to tune in and make suggestions if you if you have anything that you want us to talk about then we are all ears anything hr related we are always willing to listen to once again from gary and from myself thank you very much for listening and we hope to see you or hear from you or even hope that you're listening in on the next hr on the offensive podcast bye-bye